We're delighted to be here this morning, and uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, again, if you turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Uh, we hope that things that we've been bringing to you have not been tedious. I uh, hope that they've not been boring. Uh, we possibly have just a couple more sermons that we'd like to uh, bring out of this chapter uh, before we move on to uh, something else. <clears throat> That which we've covered thus far has brought us down now to uh, verse 11, uh, what is commonly called the great white throne of judgment. Uh, those of you that didn't grow up in a primitive Baptist church or you hung out with friends when you were younger that were not primitive Baptists, you're fairly familiar with the great white throne of judgment. Um, Maybe not the truthfulness of it, but you're familiar with it. Uh, when I was younger, uh, over on the east side of Atlanta, there was a fairly large church that always had a Christmas play every year, and uh, we would go see that, not because I loved what I was seeing, but most of my family also would travel up to see this, so I got to see aunts and uncles and cousins. We'd go see this, and we'd hang out, and it's the typical uh religious play that, that you would see uh, at a church. There's a devil on one side. There's an angel on the other side. There are people that pass by both of these creatures through this play. There are people that you meet in life. Some of them accept the angel and some of them walk away with the devil. And at the end of the play, uh, those who accepted the angel got walked up the stairs into heaven. And those that didn't accept what the angel had to offer, were drug kicking and screaming off to the side and thrown into hell as everybody stood here before this great white throne judgment. Uh, when I think back on that, I think, well, one thing particular stands out in mind uh, of all the years that we saw this, that there was one particular lady who would pass through this play that they're doing who had a small child. And the lady didn't accept the offer of the angel. And as she is drugged, kicking and screaming into hell, the child is taken from her arms and the child is taken crying and screaming into heaven. And I thought, wow, well played. Not right, but well played. I see what, I see what you're trying to get at. Uh, we would often go to haunted houses and haunted trails uh, and if they were run by a religious organization, you essentially were walking through what their idea of the apocalypse was. And as you came out of the end of these terror trails, these fields of horror, you always came to the throne of judgment. I'm going to go ahead and submit to you right now at the beginning because most people are listening at the beginning. Most people listen at the beginning and most people definitely listen at the end. What happens in the middle? You know. This is the white throne of judgment. I agree with that. Let's, let's read verse 11 through verse 15. John says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's a lot going on in this passage. Uh, we're going to break this apart here in just a little bit to kind of examine a couple of the pieces by themselves. Because as you read this, it's almost like John is having uh, two separate conversations at one time that he's kind of overlaying each other. Uh, but we do get the idea that this great white throne is a throne where which the dead are judged. That is the idea that's laid out before us here in this passage. I agree with that. Put your fingers there and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Or if you don't have a finger, just use your bookmark. And turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Here in Hebrews chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has this to say to us in verse 14. Hebrews 4.14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does Paul say that the child of God has here right now? A throne of grace is what we appear before. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our high priest, has gone into heaven for us. I'm going to submit to you that this throne of judgment will not apply to the children of God. I submit to you that our judgment has already been carried out. Our judgment has already been carried out on the cross of Calvary. When Isaiah himself said, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. What you suffer from the wrath of God was meted out on the person of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. I'll also submit to you here in just one more second that those in this passage that are judged by their works will not find themselves in a very happy place. And see, that, that's a very important point about this. 
Because preachers across this land, if they ever came across this, they would holler out to their congregations, you better make sure that you are ready for the throne of judgment. You better make sure that you've done the right thing. You better make sure that you have accepted Christ before you get to this throne of judgment. Because when you get to this throne of judgment, there'll be no time to accept Him. Those who are judged by their works in this passage will not find themselves in a happy place. But let's back up and let's digress for just a little bit. He says, I saw a great white throne and Him that sat on it. Now, it's, it is interesting here that he does not tell us that who the hymn is that sits on it. But we would conclude by what is found in, say, chapter 21, that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We would conclude that it would be the Lord Jesus Christ, as told to us in uh, maybe the book of Romans, wherein God will judge the secrets of all men by the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever it is that is seated upon this throne... He sits alone. There's nobody that sits with him. And as he sits upon this throne, it says, From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Whoever sits on this throne, and whenever this throne appears, that is the only thing that appears for those who stand before it. To look at. Everything else disappears. It is the centerpiece. It is the centerpiece. Of this epical event. I'd like to read to you what uh, Elder Joe Holder wrote about this in his book. Revelation. You find this quote on page 402. He says no egotistical saint. Struts around to exhibit the stars in his crown. No self-centered believer will boast of all the people she, has, she was responsible for getting into heaven. All eyes will focus on this throne and on him who sits upon it. That is a great statement. When this throne shows up and the one who sits upon it be it God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ, they're the only thing that anyone will be looking at. Now, <clears throat> the question does come to mind to some people, well, are you sure the saints of God will never appear before this? No, not really. I gather that from the text. But I will say this. Hassel in his church history in chapter 8 on page 261, has these words to say. He says, The saints will be present, not to have their portion assigned, but to have it confirmed forever. And that God's righteousness may be vindicated in both the saved and the lost in front of the whole universe. If God's people do appear before any throne in, in heaven, It will be confirmed upon us what God has done for us. It will not be assigned to us. Because what was confirmed to us or appointed to us was given to us before the world began. 
We were chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. We were saved by God through His grace before the world began, as told to us in 2 Timothy chapter 1. The only thing that the devil can do is to steal the joy of God's salvation from you. He cannot steal God's salvation. He can steal your joy of it, though. And as you walk through this life, you may doubt. You may look at your own sinful life. You may falter. And you may say to yourself, how can a being so holy and just and right as he is love someone so sinful as I am? When you see God in heaven, salvation will be confirmed to you. It will become the greatest reality you've ever seen. Because we are not going to be judged by our works. We were judged at Calvary's cross by the work of Christ. And it baffles me to no end why people really don't understand this and accept this more than they do. Me accepting a debt being paid does not pay the debt. The debt being paid pays the debt. Me accepting that the debt has been paid affects how I react the rest of my life. When Christ went to the cross and paid the debt, it didn't matter if you believed it. It's still true. And here's... Here's an interesting thought concerning this. Countless multitudes are told if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't go to heaven. My question is, if I don't believe in Jesus, I can't go to heaven. Well, then if I don't believe in hell, do I not go to hell? Oh, no, if you don't believe in Jesus, you have to go to hell. But I don't believe in hell. But hell exists whether you believe it or not. And so does Jesus. And so does His sacrifice. If He paid the debt, He paid the debt. And if God was satisfied with Him paying the debt, there's a little thing in legal forms called double jeopardy. You cannot be charged twice for the same crime. Here's how that plays out. If I am accused, say... Killing Brother Rhodes. But the body is not found. And I'm still found guilty of that. I go to prison for however long I go. The moment I'm released and I find out he's still alive and he just hoodwinked me, I can walk up in broad daylight and gun him down in the street and not suffer for that because I was already judged for doing that 25 years ago. See that? For God to pour out judgment on the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago and yet still pour out judgment on you before His throne 1,000 years from now is double jeopardy. It's ridiculous and it won't work. The one who sits on this throne sits by himself on this great white throne, sits in all his sovereignty, 
and in all his glory. And whatever he passes out and whatever he hands out and whatever he hands down is true and right and just and the right thing to be done. He is a God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he. Notice for me. It says here that I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were open, and another book was open. Books were open, and another book was open. So on one side of the throne, books, plural, were open. Uh, books, plural, has to be more than one. So it's at least two, maybe three, maybe five. I don't know what the count is, but it's books, plural. On the other side, a book was open. A singular one book was open, and it was called the book of life. Now, the thing that we have here as John is having this discussion is, He's talking about these books. He's talking about those that are judged. And then right in the middle of it, he's got death and hell being cast in the lake of fire. We've got multiple conversations going on here. So for the sake of argument, we will recognize death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. They're out of the picture. We also want to recognize, he says in verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Where did these dead come from? Well, he just tells you here where they came from. But, you know, I kind of, when I, as the more I read this and the more I read this and the more I read this, you remember it said in verse 5 that it said, the rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. It told you that there were some which stood with God who had not worshipped the beast and the rest of the dead lived not. That gives us the thought that these dead that stand before the throne of God here are the dead in sin. There are the wicked and the unregenerate of this world. And as they stood before God, it said they were judged out of the things that were written in the books according to their works. That's verse 12. The dead which judged out of those things which were written in the books, plural, according to their works. And when death and hell were cast into the lake of fire in verse 14, it then goes on to say in verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Did you catch it? It did not say that whoever's good works outweighed their bad works were not cast into the lake of fire. It lets you think, it leads you to think that whosoever is judged by his works at this day will find himself in hell forever. There'll not be one work that you have done that will deliver you from eternal torment. The only thing that will deliver you from eternal torment is having your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
Now we have the question, as some would say, well, yeah, you've got to get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So come up here and bow your head, raise your hand, do something. You've got to confess, admit, confit, repent, and repeat, and be baptized and all that, and get your name written in there right now. All right? Let's read what the... Would you, you want to just read what the Bible has to say? How about that? Chapter 17 and verse 8. Chapter 17 and verse 8 says, the beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When was your name written in the Lamb's book of life? From the foundation of the world. It was not written the day you raised your hand and decided to accept what the preacher had to say. It was not written the day you realized you were a sinner. It was not written the day that you were baptized. It was not written any other time you were alive. It was written by God for you from the foundation of the world. Which harmonizes with so many other scriptures that we've already quoted many of them to you this morning. We were chosen in Christ before the world began. God who has saved us and called us, not with a holy calling, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. This, was, this occurred before God founded this world. And why is it that so many people object to something so wonderful as this? God loved you before the world began. God loved you, speaking of Jacob and Esau, the children being not yet born, neither having done good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that call it. As it is said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. So many people get get. So taken aback with this. It's not fair for God to hate Esau. Really? You turned on the TV lately and seen Esau running around? You seen the chaos and the anarchy and the rebellion and the destruction that's out here in the world around us? David himself had enough sense in the book of Psalms to look out and see how the wicked act and said, I see by their actions there is no fear of God before their eyes. Job himself said of the wicked that they say, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. I think it's perfectly reasonable for God not to love Esau. The thing that ought to puzzle every one of us is that God loved Jacob. That scoundrel, that cheat, that liar, that one who stole his brother's birthright and stole his brother's blessing. He ought to be burning with him. And yet, God loved him before the foundation of the world. In the book of Deuteronomy 32, it says that God found Jacob in the desert, in a waste-howling wilderness, kept him as the apple of his eye, and led him about. God found Jacob. 
It didn't say in, De- in Deuteronomy 32 that Jacob was out looking for God. God found Jacob. And he didn't find him down at the tent revival. He didn't find him down at the baptismal pool. He found him in a desert, in a waste howling wilderness, not looking for God, but running from God. And in spite of the fact that God had loved him before the foundation of the world, Adam sinned and plunged the entirety of the human race into depravity and in a punishment that they could not recover themselves out of. God continued to love Jacob despite every bit of it. Why that's not the most loved story is beyond me. But let me give you another one too here. In Romans chapter 11, there is something within uh, society called the law of non-contradiction. In other words, two things that are exact opposites cannot be the same. If A equals C and C is not equal to B, A and B cannot be equal. There's a law of non-contradiction not only in society, but in God's Word. He says this in Romans chapter 11 and verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it be by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. To the pastors telling their congregations, well, it's a cooperation. It's, it's a mixture of a little bit of God's grace and how you work that out. This text says it's either all of your works or it's all of God's grace. It is not a mingled cooperation of both of them. It is one or the other. And according to what we've read in Revelation 20, that those that were judged by their works were cast in the lake of fire, I'll say it's not by works. It has to be by His grace. Now, when... When you look at this wonderful chapter as well, there are other puzzles that, that come to mind. But let's, let's keep in mind here, he said, the books were opened. I do not offer this as uh, an absolute on this text. I will offer this for your consideration. Uh, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, Well, let me me back up a little bit. It says in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 3, even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Uh, No doubt that y'all have heard in time past uh, that the way that Abraham became a child of God was that one time way back yonder in the book of Genesis when Abraham believed God, he became a Christian. Y'all have probably been told that over and over and over if you grew up somewhere other than Friend of Baptist. I have a problem with that statement uh, that is laid out here. That's Genesis 15 where where that comes from. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. 
The problem that I have with this is that several chapters prior to that, God called him out of the land of Ur of Chaldees before it says he believed God. And God led him about. And it says that everywhere Abraham went, except down into the land of Egypt, Abraham built an altar and worshipped God. You've got somebody building altars, worshipping God, before they're a child of God? Huh? That doesn't fit, does it? No, when it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to righteousness, his belief was evidence he was a child of God, not the cause of it. So notice what he says right here. Verse 9. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things, which were written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So I submit for your consideration, I did not submit dogmatically, but I submit for your consideration, possibly God opens up the book of the law. Is it the Ten Commandments? It was, every, was it everything that was contained in Exodus and Leviticus? Who knows? But I do know this even in the Ten Commandments, even in the one commandment. You realize there was a time where there was just one commandment, right? When God said to Adam, thou shalt not eat of it. It's just one commandment. And then he gave ten. And then he said, whoever offends in one point is guilty of the whole thing. Now, it doesn't mean that if you're a liar... That's okay, just go ahead and murder and commit adultery and steal. That's not what that means. Or if you steal, go ahead and commit adultery and lie. And, and Well, what he says, the perfection of the chain of commandments, when you break one, one commandment, the perfection of the whole is broken. And so to the person who thinks your good works are going to get you to heaven, you're going to repent enough, you're going to be baptized enough, you're going to pray enough, you're going to live godly enough for the rest of, to the rest of your days, I submit to you, you don't understand this passage. Because it's not what you think you have done. Because when the rich young ruler came to our Savior and said to him, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord answered his foolish question. And he told him. And the rich young ruler said, all this have I done from my youth. And the Lord said, one thing thou lackest. If we're going to stand before God and tell Him all this I've done, I submit to you He will always say to us, one thing thou lackest. And it'll be something you never thought about. Oh, well, see, that's why you got to pray, God, forgive me of the sins that I commit that I don't know about. See, you're trying to cover yourself. It's what you're trying to do. Oh, okay, let's, let's walk through Mars Hill and let's put up a statue to everything and then to this unknown God... We'll put one up to him also. Let's walk before God. Let's ask forgiveness for everything. And then over here, the unknown sin, we'll put a forgiveness to that one as well. That how this works? That's how it works in the minds of a lot of people. But that's not how it works with God. One thing thou lackest. You'll always lack one thing. You stand before God by yourself. Ultimately, the one thing that the wicked will lack 
this forgiveness of Christ. But here's a book. Possibly. Don't know. Let me give you another one. Romans chapter 2. And this one is, this one is a little dilly. In Romans chapter 2, there's a sort of a parenthetical phrase in this chapter that deserves our attention. He says in verse 14 of Romans chapter 2, for, uh, well, let's, let's read verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. It doesn't mean it makes you godly. It just gives evidence that you are. Again, Jesus said, my works bear witness of who I am. Walking on the water, raising the dead, uh, healing the lame, the blind, the sick. That didn't make Jesus Jesus. His works bore witness of who he was. When the Gentiles, which have not the law, this is verse 14, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law or a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Uh, there seems to be a, a judgment that's going to go on here. And the judgment is, he's judging the secrets of men. The parenthetical phrase, these last uh, verses 13, 14, and 15, are very interesting. Because you talk about something that all men possess, which is called a conscience. I think some people have the idea that conscience is only godly. Conscience is not only godly. Conscience is an admission of existence. You and I have a godly conscience because we've been born again of God's Spirit. The wicked do not have a godly conscience. When Hitler killed six million Jews plus his political enemies plus those who were handicapped, he did so in perfect conscience. You ever read that phrase in, in the book of Acts where Paul says, I have lived before God in all good conscience up to this day? Maybe this, maybe this is a sermon that deserves to be all by itself. But Paul says, I've lived in good conscience before God up until this day. Everything I've done, I've done to good conscience. Heretics in the Old Testament were to be killed. And anybody who worshipped Christ, the Messiah, the uh, false Messiah according to the Jews, was a heretic. And heretics deserved to be killed. And Saul of Tarsus killed heretics, of which people who preached the gospel were considered heretics. See how that works? When the wicked go about enslaving children, in human trafficking, they do so with an internal clear conscience. This is why they do it so much. When the Muslims blow up a building full of Christians and Jews, they do so in good conscience because in their mind, Christians and Jews are heretics 
and heretics deserve to die. People will be judged at the last day because their conscience excused their wicked deeds. Is what that means. You and I have a conscience that does not excuse our wicked deeds. Our conscience accuses us, does it not? And it tells us that what we have done is the wrong thing and we're going the wrong direction. That is a conscience that comes only from God. Nowhere else. So just for your submission, I say to you, possibly the books that are laid out are man's own conscience. God's holy law. But suffice it to say, whatever those books are, the judgment that is passed out is not a good judgment on those who get it. Now, <clears throat> there's another little puzzle I've got that I'd like to present to you. Uh, because the, this was a thought that I had as I'm reading this, that I'm thinking, what if the righteous do not appear with the wicked in Revelation 20? And, and then I was paused. I said, well, now wait a minute. If you turn to Matthew, that scenario, that, that scenario doesn't play out. You, you're wrong on that case. So that's Matthew 25. We are all familiar with this one. In Matthew 25 and verse uh, 32. Verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left. And obviously when you read down through this, this is an eternal separation that's laid out here. The righteous will be told, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's verse 34. The wicked shall be told, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Sounds like these two groups are together. Let me go ahead and submit to you that I believe this occurs at the same time. But how can one event be perceived by two different people in a different way? How can one event occur and yet affect two different people differently? Well, you've got to realize everything Jesus did was one event that affected two different groups of people. The people He healed jumped up and rejoiced. The people who saw Him heal people on the Sabbath day, cursed him and would have stoned him. So you've got one event there already that affects two different people. The disciples were always called in this. One event affects two different people. People who read things. I, this is why I don't like I don't like texting. I don't really like Facebook that much because you can read something on Facebook or you can read something on a text I send you and you can't get the spirit of which I am writing that. You might think I'm being mad at you, and I'm not. I'm smiling the whole time. Or you might think I'm 
completely ignoring what you're doing, and I'm just angry as an old way hen at you. Visual things always work better. Vocal things always work better. But you, So, let me present this puzzle to you. Here you've got Matthew 25. All nations have gathered before him, and at this time, he separates one from the other. Okay? You say, well, yes, that's what's going to happen at the end of time. God's going to separate everybody. We're going to have a great big room of everybody, and God's going to separate everybody. All right, turn with me to um, 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4. <clears throat> now, I know y'all know this one. I know y'all know this one because it's, it's read at almost every funeral we've ever had. First Thessalonians chapter 4, right? Verse 13. But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain at his coming, uh, at the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now what's the scenario? The scenario is that when Christ comes back, he's coming for us. There's no wicked in this text, is there? Where are they at? Y'all puzzled enough? Let me give you one more. <clears throat> I'm not done. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. And you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Skip the princess, read the last statement, in that day. Well, now we got, a, we got another perspective of this event, that when Christ comes back, he's coming with his holy angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. At the same time he comes to do that, he will come to be glorified and magnified and adored in all his saints in that day. How can one event have two different effects on two different groups of people. And I think I have an answer for you. The answer is in the book of Exodus. The answer is in Exodus chapter uh, 14. What's happening in Exodus 14? Exodus 14, Israel is being led out of Egyptian bondage, right? They are at the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. And they've got to go across the Red Sea. All, what, two million, three million Jews that came out of Egypt? Hot on their trails, fast behind them, 
Pharaoh's army. Riding hard and catching up quick. How are they going to get across the water? Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. Exodus 14 and verse 19 says, And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. Here's one event. This cloud comes down between the redeemed and the unredeemed. It's darkness to the unredeemed. They cannot see where they're going and they cannot pursue Israel. It is light unto the redeemed and they're led across the Red Sea in complete safety. How about what happens when Christ comes back? All these things happen all at one time. How about the fact that when He comes back, well, let's, let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians. We, we, we want to read this because I, can get, I could sit here and I could surmise and I can think, but really God says it best. Let's go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In chapter 4, he said to us, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We've read that text in every, in every funeral you've ever attended. Probably even read it at yours. Notice this. What is he talking about in chapter 4? He's talking about the second coming of Christ, right? We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus shall God bring with him. Christ is coming back. When's he coming back? That's what everybody wants to know. Everybody's trying to pinpoint that date, trying to set that date. Well, I, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to it myself. But chapter 5, verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him, wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another. That day is coming. That day is a secret though. And that day will come as a thief in the night. Uh, does that mean that Jesus Christ is going to sneak around behind something and sneak up on somebody and take something that doesn't belong to him? That's not what thief in the night has reference to. A thief in the night just simply comes as a surprise. You're sitting in your house and somebody walks up the hall who ain't supposed to be there, you're going to be surprised. A thief in the night comes as a surprise. It will be a surprise when Christ comes back. But guess what? It's going to be two different surprises. 
The wicked, when they see him coming, it's going to be the worst day they'd ever had in their life. In Revelation chapter 6, it says that they will say unto the mountains, unto the hills, and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. For the day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? They shall run in chaos and in anarchy, trying to find a place to hide from the face of the Lamb that sits on the throne. But they won't find one. There'll be no place for them. We already read that. But this Thanksgiving, some of y'all are going to have children come in from out of town, right? And they're going to get here at some point, right? And you're going to go about your busy day preparing for them to be here. And all of a sudden, you're going to hear coming down the driveway the roll of the tire. Or you're going to hear outside the bark of the dog because somebody is approaching. And you're going to reach up and you're going to realize, hey, my children are here. What a pleasant surprise. God's people are going to be surprised, but it's going to be a pleasant surprise. They are going to see Him as He is. He shall come the second time unto salvation and unto them that look for Him. It shall be a glorious and happy time. I find it quite interesting that He uses the phrase, Sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child. The wicked in this world that we live in are constantly trying to build some utopian society where we have no problems, no troubles, no strife, no disease, no death. Everything's just happy, lucky, glory. All we live, all equally together. You're never going to have a perfect utopian society because you got a bunch of people who are sinners trying to bring about a utopia. It ain't going to happen. Secondly, God is never going to make this planet so well and wonderful that you cease to long for heaven's pure world and His second return. But it shall come as a woman, as travail on a woman with child. The expectation of seeing Christ again to God's people will be the same as a woman expecting a child. She has this ex. Here she is. She is. She is great with child. She's imagining in her life what it's going to be like to have this newborn infant in her arms. She's imagining what her life is going to be like. And I guarantee you, it's going to be a new existence for her. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, but that's another. That's another time. She's not sitting here. Thinking, oh, I dread this day. How horrible this is going to be. Why do you have to be here? No, she's thinking how wonderful this is going to be. How delightful this is going to be. Now let me ask you this. In Revelation 20, the dead are brought before the great white throne of judgment. They're judged by their works and they're cast into the lake of fire. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, it's the dead who are brought before the judgment, right? Where are God's people ever called the dead in the New Testament? Huh? Huh? Where are they ever called the dead? Ah, there's two places. 
Maybe more than two, but there's at least two. But let me show you what it says here. In Colossians chapter, uh, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, for the most part, the Apostle Peter said that we are a peculiar people. We are a purchased possession. We are a royal priesthood. We are lively stones built up a lively house. That's what we are called, right? Over and over and over again, we are called the living or the lively. Colossians chapter 3, though, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, what do you mean risen with Christ? When Christ arose from the tomb, you arose with Him. In positional legal jargon, you're alive in Christ. He arose, you arose in Him. He arose for you. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now wait a minute, hold on, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with God in Christ. What do you mean I'm dead? I'm dead to the damning effects of sin. I'm dead to the separation from God. I will never, you will never be separated from God ever, 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 ever again. And then verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation 20, it said that the dead appeared before this throne, and the books, plural, were opened, and the dead were judged out of the works that were written in that book. Right? That's, that's what the text said. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do... What's the next word? Follow. Wait a minute. In 20, we've got people appearing here and their works aren't following them. Their works are brought right out in front of them. And them and their works both go to the same place. You've got these here in Revelation 14. Their works aren't brought out before them. Their works are behind them. You know where their works are at? Their works are down here. When we think of Bill Compton, Cenas White, Howard Herring, Joe George, Marzell Dennis, we think of those people that were down here with us. Where are they now? The dead in Christ. Standing in heaven's pure world. And we are thinking down here how humble Brother Bill was. How delightful his prayers were. How good, how much good work Howard did for us while he was down here. Cenus, though he did not do much, the fact that he showed up and smiled was almost enough itself. We can think about the countless things that others have done for us down here. Folks are always still telling me about the Holcombs who were here before I got here. We're constantly hearing about those things that people did while they were here with us. 
in, in, in the book of Acts, there's a, a, a little girl named Dorcas who had died. And when the apostles got to that room, I believe it was Peter had got to that room, they showed them the, the clothes that she had knitted for the poor while she was with us. The works of the righteous do not go into heaven and open the door for us. Jesus Christ, the righteous, has already gone into heaven and opened the door for us. The works of the righteous are left here back here for those of us down here to remember what good they had done because of what good God had done in them. I submit to you that the only dead that we are is dead to sin. Dead to suffering. I submit to you that as God sits on that throne and condemns all the wicked and the devil and his angels and the whole lot of them and tells them all to go jump in the lake, I submit to you they'll never see the righteous. Excuse me. I submit to you that the righteous will never see them again. I submit to you that that great cloud that came down between Israel and Egypt and separated and delivered Israel across that Red Sea, I submit to you that that great cloud is going to sit on that throne. And he's going to judge between the righteous and the unredeemed. And he will separate the unredeemed from the redeemed, and the redeemed will never be bothered by the unredeemed ever again. And it may just be for the rest of all eternity that the wicked get to look from their place of hell and torment right through the window into heaven's pure world and see how wonderful it is. And it's part of their torment also. But that's next week's sermon. This great white throne of judgment that so many use to scare hell out of people ain't for us. That great white throne is for the wicked. We've already been judged. We were judged in Christ on the cross. And now we appear before God Almighty for a throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. And boy, isn't this a great time of need right now amongst us? Isn't this a great time of confusion here, not only in America, but in the world right now? Great time of confusion. Not knowing who's right and who's wrong. Not knowing who to point the finger at and blame. Isn't that something? No. Right now we need to find grace to help in time of need. God help us at this time. God deliver us at this time. Deliver us from biting and devouring one another. And doing all that we can to honor Him and love each other in the process. Thank you all this morning for your good, patient, kind of time.